0: Let's just shift this. Whoa, that's heavy. There we go. Well, good morning, folks. That's quite a loud, booming voice that boy's got, isn't it? Not looking at anyone particularly. Like some of you all know me, and some of you don't. So please allow me this moment just to introduce myself with these words: Kōnga karatiana te, te iwi, kote pai, te waka, kōmonga kauri, te monga, kohorona te awa the family of god is my tribe the gospel is my canoe calvary my mountain jordan is my river the kingdom of god is where i am bound for jesus is the man and the holy spirit is my keeper this is who i am my name is christopher Bate. the name christopher is a contraction of two greek words christus meaning christ and ferris Meaning to bear, the name Christopher means bearer of Christ. My last name Bate is an old Norse name that means either house or home. Good morning. My name is Christopher Bate, and I have found my home as I learn to bear his name. Right. Uh, I am married. My lovely wife Jody, many of you will have had the pleasure. We've been married as of this coming Thursday for fifteen years. If you don't believe in miracles, there's one right there. Don't clap. Me clap her. <laughs> We've also got two kids together: uh, Tommy, who is ten, and Eva Rose, who is seven. Right, that's enough about me. Now that we're well acquainted and going back at least a minute and a half, we can go back to the Word of God, which we are here to serve this morning. As we continue the Gospel of Luke and our journey and our travels through the Gospel. And I'm sure you heard it in the readings that we've had this morning, and I certainly noticed it in my preparations this week. There is a theme that runs through this passage of Scripture. There's three chunks of Scripture. There's a theme, and the theme is death. Strap yourselves in, folks. This could be a bumpy ride. The theme is death. Death. Now, death is not a topic that we talk about often in polite company and certainly not in public. It's something that we are left to wrestle with in our own terms and in private. And I think we do that to our own detriment. Because every single human being who has ever lived, regardless of place or time, has to face the fact of death, whether it's your death, someone else's death, death of a loved one, death in a community. Death is a universal that applies to every human society, every human culture. It is a unifying principle that binds us together in the human experience. We all have to deal with death. So the question comes, what are you going to do with death? Now, there's only a certain number of options that are available to us when we start talking about death. One of those options is the option that's put forward to us by the self help gurus and by the new spirituality. You know, um, we're to live for the moment. You know, we're, we're, it's all about being present in the now. You've got to cram every moment with as much meaning and eke as much joy out of every moment that you possibly can. Now I think that's a ridiculous answer and it's an empty platitude because if you think about it, implicit in that statement is the idea that we don't want to look down the road of the future. We don't want to see what's down the road because we know that down that road somewhere, lurking behind a bush or a stone or in a cul-de-sac somewhere, death is waiting and it will claim every one of us. And so there's not much hope in that statement, is there? It's a denial of the future. In fact, it's a statement for the willfully ignorant. We can't live like that. We've got to live in light of the future, not in ignorance of it. And those that have tried to live this way, trying to cram every moment with as much meaning as possible, have inevitably found that in cramming those moments with meaning, they've found the moment to be meaningless. And in trying to fill themselves with the joy of the moment, they've found themselves emptied as a result. If you need examples of that, we simply need to look to our celebrity culture, don't we? Have you ever seen a more banal and vacuous group of people? Honestly. Who have all of the resources, all of the promises, all of the opportunities to fill themselves with all of the pleasures that this life promises. And yet, have you ever seen a more broken and empty group of people? They got to the top of the hill, found there was nothing there. Well... What are other options? There are other options available to us. We tell ourselves a great deal of platitudes in the face of death, don't we? One of my personal favorites is that death is a natural part of life. Or as the great English philosopher Elton John once put it, it's the circle of life. I don't think I'm on too much of a controversial ground today when I say that we shouldn't be taking our life philosophy, whether it's a kuna matata or anything else, from a digital lion. But so many of us do. So many of us do exactly that. We take our life philosophies, our worldviews from the movies we watch and from the music we imbibe. Death is a natural part of life. Anyone who has actually experienced death up close and personal, got right up in the grill of death, will know that that statement is an out-and-out lie. An out-and-out lie. Something horribly wrong happens at death. The Word of God tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that we have been made... And God has put eternity in our hearts. Every single one of us believes that we've made to live forever. We all believe it. And yet death confronts us with the stark reality that something has gone horribly wrong. And that's how we feel when we witness death. Something is wrong. This is wrong. This shouldn't happen. We feel robbed and cheated in the face of death. Death is not a natural part of life it is the abrupt ending of life and we feel robbed and cheated in the face of it death is an amputation it's an amputation of personality and just as with the amputation of a member of your body you still feel the phantom itch and the phantom pain in the space that was once occupied by the one you loved Death is not a natural part of life. It's the abrupt ending of life. It feels wrong. We feel cheated in the face of it. Something has gone wrong. No hope to be found there. Another option that I want to hold out before you is that that is so wonderfully um, exemplified in the words of the American poet Dylan Thomas. He has this to say, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning day, do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced on a green bay. rage. Rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late. They grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight. Blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on sad height, curse Bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. You can hear so wonderfully in the words of Thomas the outright rage and anger, the shaking fist of rebellion in the face of death. And yet you can also hear The futility of such an act. Because wise men know that in the end, dark is right. Death claims us all as it claimed Dylan Thomas. Live for the now. Be present in the moment. Akuna Matata. Circle of life. Rage against the dying of the light. No hope in any of these statements. So the question comes, what will you do with death? What will you do with death? The Christian answer to this question is radical. Radical. You won't find another like it anywhere. But before we get to the solution prescribed by the Christian faith, we need to make a diagnosis of why we die in the first place. Right? So the question comes, why do we die? The Scripture tells us that we die because of sin. Sin? What's that? What does that mean? What are you talking about, sin? Come around here using words like sin. Gosh, who do you think you are? Doesn't hold much... Cultural currency really does it, that word. So what do we mean by sin? What are we talking about? Well, if you ask the question, what is sin in a Christian context, often you'll get an answer that sounds something like this. Sin is the breaking of the laws of God. Now, before I get myself in too much hot water, as is my want to do, I will say that that is correct. Sin is the breaking of the laws of God. That's true. It's just woefully inept, It's just, it doesn't say enough. It doesn't say, we could say much more than that. We need to say much more than that when we talk about sin. Sin and law go together, sure, but the law comes within a context. And the context makes sense of the law. What do I mean? Well, when we think about the laws of God, the mind often wonders, whether you're a Christian or not, to those great thou shalt not statements of the Old Testament. Thou shalt not kill. That's my best Cecil B. DeMille, right? Thou shalt not. The Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, that's where the mind goes. But the Ten Commandments aren't arbitrary laws that God gives us. He's sitting there on the mountain one day and goes, oh, that sounds like a good idea. We'll give that to Moses and he can give it to the people. Kushti. That's not the way it works. No, the law comes within a context. In Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are given, it begins like this. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What's the significance of that? Well, it's an identity statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. It's a summary statement of everything that's gone before in the story up to that point. What's happened? Well, Israel are captives and slaves in Egypt, and the Egyptians are treating them brutally, and they're being beaten and tortured as slaves, and they're crying out for a redeemer, someone to save them from their torments. And God says, I heard you. I heard you in your cries. I heard you in your call for a redeemer. And I have sent Moses and I told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh would not. So by my mighty power and outstretched arm, I brought you out of Egypt. And I made you a nation that day. In fact, you shall be my firstborn son. I made you, created you for a relationship with myself. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. And I've demonstrated that for you by walking with you in the wilderness. I was there the whole time. In the pillar of fire, and the cloud of smoke, I have led you. So don't have any other gods before me. Do you see that? Do you see how that works? This is who I am. This is why I've created you. This is what I've done. This is how you ought to live in light of that. It's not an arbitrary set of laws. The laws of God are actually a revelation of the character and nature of who God is. The purpose for which he has made us and how we ought to live in light of those two things. Does that change your perspective on what the laws of God are? They're not arbitrary. They're a revelation of God telling us who he is, who we are, and how we ought to live. Now, if that's the case, if that's true, then to break the laws of God is not to break some arbitrary set of rules. To break the laws of God is actually to violate the very character and nature of God Himself, and that is a far more serious thing, is it not? Violating the very character and nature of God is far more serious than breaking some set of rules. Rules are meant to be broken. Yes, I just said that. But persons are not meant to be violated. God is violated by our sin. But that's what we see on the cross, isn't it? God violated on a wooden tree by, through, and because of sin. But let's take this another step further. The laws of God are a revelation of who God is, who we are, and how we ought to live as a result of that. We've been made for a relationship with God. When we violate the character and nature of God, our relationship to Him is damaged. And we become separated from Him as a result. Yeah. But we were made for a relationship with God. And so to be living separated from God is actually to live in a way for which we were never designed. And so in breaking the laws of God, we violate the very character and nature of God, and we become damaged as a result. But that's what we see on the cross, isn't it? One of us, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, violated by, through, and because of sin. And so the cross becomes a vivid and dramatic demonstration of the true nature and severity of sin, the violation of God and the violation of humanity. That sounds serious. But let me take this another step further. Violate the laws of God, you violate the character and nature of God Himself. And violating the character and nature of God, we become separated from God. But God is the creator of all that's come to exist. Everything that has received life has received it from God. God is the source of all life. To be separated from God is to be separated from the source of life. If you're separated from the source of life, death is the result. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't that just follow? Separated from God, separated from the source of life. Separated from the source of life, death results. Scripture tells us that we are alienated from the life of God. The bad news, folks, is that we have all violated the character and nature of God. We are all sins. We have all sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How could I have sinned? Come on. What do you mean I've sinned? No I haven't, oh yeah you have, oh yeah you have. You see each and every one of us wants to live life our way. We want to live according to our truth. We want to define ourselves and our identity on our own terms, on the basis of our feelings. And we expect reality just to revolve around us and just slot into its place around our feelings. And we expect everybody else to fall into line with the rules that we've set and obey the rules we've set. Because we want to be gods of our own lives, don't we? I want to be the god of my own little universe. Even A and Z realize this. A and Z, we live in your world. Burger King, have it your way. Our entire world is geared up on that premise. You can have it your way. You can do what you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. You can define good and evil on your own terms. You can be God of you. But in living like that, we make ourselves God in the place of God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and that includes you. It includes me. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because we all live like that. We just do. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all become separated from God because of our sin. But to be separated from God is to be separated from the source of life. If you're separated from the source of life, death is the result. And so we've all sinned and so we all die. Now, I'm no medic. I don't have a medical degree. I'm not a doctor of anything. But this I do know, that dead people can't save themselves. (laughs) Drop dead of a heart attack, you ain't coming back. You just don't, you, you can't save yourself. It doesn't matter how much energy you expend on your own behalf, you can't save yourself. You need someone to step in and save you. So what's, the plan here? What's the solution? God enters into human history on a rescue mission. That's what the name Jesus means. God saves. God to the rescue. The eternal second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, enters into human history in the form and the fullness of the one we call Jesus of Nazareth. And he lives a perfect life. He lives his life in such a way so as never to have sinned. He never violates the character and nature of the Father. Instead, he perfectly reflects the character and nature of the Father to the Father himself, to all of us as human beings, and to all of creation. Read your Bible. In doing so, he not only serves the Father, but he demonstrates for us what a true human life ought to look like. And because these things are true, at the appointed time, he's able to step forward and say, I will take ownership of this people. I will be the king of the human family. I will be the head. I will be the leader. The kingdom of God has come through me. And as a good leader does, he takes responsibility for the people he leads. Leadership lessons of Jesus 101. He takes responsibility for the people who leads. And he takes accountability for their actions. Buck stops here, says Jesus. I will take responsibility for them. And so he, as the perfect human being, goes to the cross willingly. And the Father lays upon him all of the guilt, all of the sin, all of the shame, all of the punishment that is deserving of us, that we deserve. He laid it on Jesus. And Jesus took that in our place for us. The wrath of God that is stirred up because of the violation of God that takes place in our sin was laid upon his shoulders. And because that is the case, the sin problem is dealt with. Justice has been served. One human, the perfect human, stood in the place of all humanity and said, I will bear it. So the sin problem is dealt with. And what that means then is because the sin problem is dealt with, freedom is the result. We can be free from our sin, from our guilt, from our shame. We can come before the cross and thank the Lord for what He has done, the price that He has paid for us. We can be free. It doesn't matter what you've done. And the evidence of that is in this passage. Jesus, you'll remember, is crucified between two criminals, we're told. Now, crucifixion is one of those crimes, that's, uh, one of those punishments that's held only for one of the highest crimes murder, insurrection, rebellion, that sort of stuff. So these are bad dudes. And one of them's railing against Jesus, going, What sort of Messiah are you? Chosen one of God? Ha! Can't even get down off the cross and save yourself. Useless, that's what you are. The other one says, Hang on a second, don't you even fear God? We're up here for very good reasons, mate. We did what they told us we had done. They nailed us to a cross for it. Justice is done. We deserve this. Him, not so much. He's innocent. Never did it. What they claimed of him. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says to the bad dude, says to the bad dude, he says, truly I tell you, this day, you, me, paradise. He's saying, I've reserved a place for you in paradise. It's going to be good. You're going to be there. Not only will you be there, you will be there with me. We'll walk together in that paradise, my friend. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. It doesn't matter what crimes you have committed or it doesn't matter in what ways you have violated the character and nature of God. Freedom is offered to you at the cross of Christ because your sins have been paid for. You don't need to carry them any longer. You can lay down your burden at the foot of the cross. He takes our sin. We get his righteousness and the freedom of the love of God. sin problem is dealt with the root cause of our death has been done with and just as the root cause of death is done with so the symptoms will eventually vanish as well now let me take a slightly different tack for a moment because i don't want you to hear this and say well that's just all abstract philosophy and theology chris you know i've actually lost someone and it hurt i know what you're saying so have i have lost plenty of people in my life too And it does hurt. I'm not saying these things to diminish the reality of the pain of loss in our lives that comes as a result of death. It's real. It's still real. It still hurts. It's still painful. But what the cross does is it puts it into a context. At the cross, the pain and the joy collide. At the cross, the pain and the joy collide. There's a real man on a real piece of wood, nailed there with real hammers and real nails. There's a real scourging, a real beating. There's real blood. He's nailed there. It's real pain. In fact, it's worse than that. It's the psychological pain that goes along with it. It's worse than that. It's the spiritual pain that we will never understand of having the sins of humanity laid upon his shoulders and then being separated from his father as a result. He will, we will never understand the true severity of what Jesus went through on that cross. In fact, I am guessing we will spend the rest of eternity coming to grips with it and magnifying it and glorifying in it what he did for us. But he did it willingly. Why? Why would he do such a thing? Scripture tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the pain of the cross. Jesus knew that his death was not going to be meaningless. He knew that his pain and his suffering was not meaningless. In fact, there was great meaning in it. His death, his suffering would bring the fulfillment of a plan and a promise that would be made since before the foundation of the earth was made. The Father would get his glory. Sin would be depicted for truly the nature and severity that sin is. Sin would be paid for. A people would be one. The Father would have his people. The people would have their God. They would dwell together in eternity, and one day, Jesus will return and dry every eye and heal every broken heart and put to rights all the wrongs that we experience in this world. He saw these things and counted these things as a joy, a joy, and for the joy set before him, he endured the pain of the cross. Jesus' pain at the cross was real, but it was within a context of the joy set before him. As it was with Jesus, so will it be for us. There is real pain and loss, real pain and the suffering that comes with death, but that comes within a context, and there's a promise that one day that pain will be swallowed up in joy, weeping endureth for the night, but joy cometh with the morning. That's a promise that God has made to us in Christ. So the question comes, not anymore, what will you do with death? But what will you do with the crucified Christ? What will you do with Jesus? That's now the question. And there's only a certain number of options that are available to us on that, and they've been demonstrated for us here in this passage. We've already talked about one of the thieves who railed against Jesus and mocked him and tormented him. And he was among others who were doing exactly the same. The leaders, the priests, the Pharisees, the other Roman soldiers and centurions, they were all tormenting him and mocking him. That choice is before you. I implore you, I plead with you, don't taunt the the Son of God today. Because I believe that one day we will all pass through the veil of death. And when we do, we'll all come face to face with the Son of glory. And if you have tormented him and chose to live your life separate from him in this life, so you will be separate from him in the life to come. And you will be eternally separate from him. And not only eternally separate from him, but from all the goodness and the beauty and the joy that flows from him. And a place where there is a turn of no beauty or joy or hope or any of those things that flow from the throne of grace, that place can only be described as hell. There is destruction on the path of tormenting the Lord Jesus. Don't go that way. Damnation awaits. Last week we heard Stu talking about the baying of the crowd, baying for Barabbas, baying for the blood of Jesus. Well, that same crowd follow in the, in the procession that was uh, led by the Lord carrying his cross. They follow in his wake, and they've got this, they 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 you know, snack foods, they're popcorn and they're cans of chips and Coke and they're munching away and they're going, yeah, this will be a great spectacle. Can't wait to see this. You know, this will be really exciting as we see this guy crucified. ha <laughs> will wait and see what happens. Well, within just a few short hours, that same crowd that was baying for the blood of Jesus are running in fear and anxiety, beating their breasts, raging at the dying of the light. Because for a period of three hours, the sun and the sky was darkened. The sun and all her glory hanging in the sky could not dare to look upon the face of the king of glory hanging from a tree crucified for you and me and so the light of the sun was darkened and in light of these cosmic events the people ran beating their breasts what have we done what have we done what have we done don't run from jesus in your guilt Don't run from Jesus in your guilt. Run towards him. There is freedom from your guilt at the cross of Christ. Don't run from the cross. Run to it. There are a number of other people that knew Jesus and counted among those are the women that followed him uh, from Galilee. But they stood at a distance and watched, no doubt confused, no doubt bemused. We didn't see this coming. We weren't expecting this. How has this happened? Our God is the God of the unexpected. Instead of requiring judgment from every single one of us, he put forward his own son, the perfect son of God, the perfect son of man, to take our punishment for us. Don't stand at a distance, run. Come boldly before the throne of grace and receive mercy in your time of need. There's one more example I want to point out to you from this passage of scripture, and his name is Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene comes to Jerusalem. He's a Jew, comes from outside the city to celebrate the Passover. He's expecting to witness the the execution of the Passover lamb at the temple. Instead, he witnesses the execution of the Passover lamb of God on a hill. At the bidding of a Roman soldier, he takes up the cross of Christ and follows after Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark 15, 21, we're told that Simon is the father to Rufus and Alexander, why would Mark make that point? Because presumably, the audience receiving that letter would know who Rufus and Alexander were. Who did he write to? He wrote his letter to the folk at Rome, to the church at Rome. Well, Paul also writes to the church at Rome. And in Romans 16, 13, Paul mentions Rufus. and says, Greet Rufus and his mother, who is also my mother. Rufus was also obviously well-loved of Paul, a follower of Christ, and Paul was obviously so close to Rufus' mother that he was able to call her his own mother. Could this be the same Rufus, the son of Simon of Cyrene? Many think it is. If that's true, Simon of Cyrene picked up his cross at the bidding of a Roman soldier and followed after Jesus, but he saw something that day that changed his life forever forever. Instead of seeing a crucified criminal, he saw the hope that comes from the rising up of the Son of Glory, just as the serpent of bronze was risen in the wilderness. All who look to it will be healed. And so, at the bidding of a new master, Simon picks up his own cross and follows in the way of Jesus. And he leaves a legacy for himself, his wife, his two sons that all of us are still reading about more than 2,000 years later. Be like Simon. He didn't see a crucified criminal. He saw the Lord of glory. He saw the Lord of glory lifted up. Glory. Glory. Hallelujah. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is treading out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fiery lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that you'll never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. My plea to you here this morning is if you are hearing this message for the first time, or if you're hearing it for a new way, or if the Spirit of God is moving upon you, to respond. My prayer is that your soul will be swift in answering him. Don't sit there and do nothing with what you have heard. When we sing this last song, stand with everybody else. Come to the front and sit in these pews, and I'll come pray with you. Stu will come pray with you, and you'll receive Christ. Come boldly. Be swift, my soul, to answer him. If you already proclaim Christ as your Lord, then today is a rallying call, is a clarion call, to assemble the troops, to stand, because we have no need to fear death. We have no need to fear the enemy, no need to fear his wiles or his ways. We can walk now in the valley of the shadow of death, knowing that he is with us, that his rod and his staff comfort us. And that the one who promises us is faithful and he will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. And what awaits us is a table and a cup that overflows and a place where there's water and peace and rest for eternity in the presence of our God. So stand now with the courage of our convictions that comes from. The faith that has been granted to us in Christ, no one can take you from the hands of the one who bought you at the price of his own blood. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Our God is marching on. Will you march with him? Let's pray. Glorious, glorious Father, mighty God and creator of all that's come to exist. How incredible is the good news that you look upon us who have treated you with such indignity and injustice, who have tormented you with the way that we live and the way we think, the way we act. How incredible that you would look upon us who have violated your very character and nature. And you would pay the price on our behalf to set us free from our guilt and shame so that we can have an eternal life with you and that that eternal life can begin right now, today. Father, what a gift! What a gift you've given us in Christ, your Son. A gift we could never have earned, a gift we could never have worked to achieve. You've granted us Christ out of your mercy and your grace, as evidence of your love for us. In this, we know that our God loves us, and that while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die. Father, we bend our knee before you today and rejoice in your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Father, I pray that you'll be working in the hearts of the people gathered today, that you'd set their hearts and minds ablaze with a passion for the Lord Jesus and for the gospel by which we're saved, and you will give them no rest until they find their rest in you. Father, let your word this morning be a clarion call to each of us for the days that lie ahead to walk in courage. The courage that says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Father, we commit ourselves into your hands. We commit ourselves to your will. Thy will be done in our hearts, in our lives on earth as it is in heaven. Lead us according to your will and your ways, because your will is always good and it is always right. And your ultimate will to conform us to the image of Jesus will be for our glory. Father, I pray that as we sing this last song together, the sound of the people of God glorifying the God who saved them would resound into the heavens. And you would be pleased with the meditations of our heart, O Father. We pray it in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen.